So we will pick up our study where we left off last week. And you'll see in the handout I'm giving you Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 14 even though the header says 1 through 23 because I was originally going to teach all 23 verses and decided after uh, working through it that we need to only go through verse 14 today. We ended in verse 8 last week um, <clears throat> focusing on the idea of what it meant to be with Christ or in Christ, what that looked like. And uh, as we uh, explored some of the interesting Greek words that are underpinning that text itself. But to um, make sure we're all uh, on the same page, literally, let's read the text together again, starting with verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, to make you obey their passions? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God with those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. <clears throat> so you look at verse 9. Again, I'm picking up literally where we left off last week at the end of verse 8. Verse 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. A couple things to notice. One, the phrase once for all is the Greek word e p h a P-A-X. Ep-hapax. So, usually when you see the word, you see it as E-P-H as an F when you pronounce it. So we would see it as E-P-H-A-X-A-S. And we would go, oh, Ephaxis. No, it's Ephaxis. Mm -hmm. F is the, what do you mean? what's the word? Prefix. Thank you. Yes, my brain is a little fuzzy today. It's the prefix, because hapix means once for all. So what does the ep add to it? It's an emphasis, basically saying once for all and then some. I mean, it says direct or specific as it can be made uh, with an emphasis in the language here that Jesus isn't going to have to come again and die again for us. It's only happened once. 
It's a once-for-all act. Paul had really never said this quite this specifically before, but you will see it three times in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27 reads, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Same word, <coughs> epaxis. Chapter 9, verse 12. <coughs> Excuse me. Could I have someone give me some water? I'm going to start choking here. <coughs> that should work, yeah. Thank you. Um, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. <clears throat> Sorry. <coughs> one, he entered once for all. Epaxis. One time, no more. Thank you. Uh, that lovely time of year where the uh, fall decides to attack your sinuses. <clears throat> and then chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Only one time. I think there's other places in Scripture where it talks about the idea of this is a one-time event or are we going to then crucify Christ again because of our acts? that kind of uh, thought process comes in. There's also a couple other interesting things to note in verse 10. You notice that for the death he died, he died to sin. That's past tense, once for all, but the life he lives, present tense. He lives to God. So you have what's happened in the past and what is now carrying forward into the future. <coughs> then we come to verse 11. And this is where I have to stop. <coughs> Boy, I haven't coughed all morning, and here I am, just perfect timing. <coughs> the worst part is when it starts to uh, seize and then spasm. But we'll get there. Ah, even better a lozenge which will click on my teeth the entire time I'm talking. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll try it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> okay. We come to verse 11. And the entire tone of Romans changes in a way that I've never seen before until I was studying it this week. In fact, as the, this concept was presented to me in my study, <coughs> I sat back in my chair and went, I had no idea. And you might go, I don't see it, Steve. What's, what, what's going on? I'll put it to you in the form of a question. We have been in Romans, as a class, 14 weeks. So for 14 hours, we have discussed the first six and a half chapters of Romans. That's a lot of time. It's a lot of emphasis. It's a lot of study. It's a lot of exploration. But in these six and a half chapters, how many exhortations or how many imperative statements or call to action have we had in Romans up to this point? None. Absolutely none. Now think about that for a second. Paul has spent an enormous amount of material Sending, setting a foundation. At, not, at one point has he said, 
And so now go do this or go do that. <coughs> Not at all. Now, one other scholar pointed out there is a imperative <coughs> in chapter three, uh, chapter three, verse four, where it says, "Let God be true." But that isn't an imperative to, or a call to action. It's more of a rhetorical statement in that context. So unless you want to, you know, come back at me and say, you missed, you missed chapter 3, verse 4, like, that isn't the point. The point is that Paul has not done anything except teach us theology up to this point. That's astounding. In all of his other letters that we have studied up to this point, Galatians, Thessalonians, both Corinthians, because that's the order chronologically. We are here, in every one of them, there is action or imperatives. Now, stop doing that. Please do this. Um, can, you know, look, look at to yourself what you're doing. But here, it's all theology. This is one of the reasons why I think Romans is hard for believers, especially if you're new to the faith, to come to a book like Romans because it's so heady, quote unquote. We've even had that uh, kind of that discussion here of saying, man, they're just the concepts here are so are so big. Yeah, that's the point. And here we have the first imperative, which he says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. That word consider is a present tense ongoing imperative to always consider this point. Now why is this significant? And this is where I, I start really thinking through this. Our society, our culture, our American culture is very much a quick fix culture. Here's the five steps to your best life now. You know, here's the six steps to improving your marriage. This is the three ways you can improve your health tomorrow. Um, here are six ways to make a million dollars by noon. We have 35 minutes <laughs> to make a million dollars. Can you do it? Um, and we seem to resonate toward that rather than digging and planting and nurturing and understanding. I'm in the publishing business. I've watched books get shorter and shorter and shorter. It's intentional. I mean, there have been times where I'll even teach it to a, a class and I'll say, you want to make a point, you need to get in, get out, and move on. Because our reader cannot handle sustained inquiry. So if, you need, if you're going to make a point, try not to make 17 of them. Make a point and then write 12 more books because they will continue to read these punchier type of thing. Now, granted, here I am preaching against that in this class, but sorry, uh, we do understand how our people think. It makes you wonder if Paul thought the same thing about his people, that they were looking for easy ways or simple ways or not even thinking of the importance of theology. And so in this letter to a, remember, to a church that he had never visited, writing to people that generally he did not know. He might have known a few of them because he greets them at the end of the book. <clears throat> but he did not, he, he's trying to lay a foundation. This isn't a formula. This isn't something easy to remember. In fact, I'll bet if I made you and embarrassed all of you, and made you stand up and can't say, can you give me the six themes of Romans 1 through 6 right now? Without looking at the text. You would kind of go, 
Um, uh, people are sinful. Um, God's mad at us. Okay, you know, we, we can't do it. And that might be a problem. Yes, I'm going to... <laughs> Isn't it interesting that the word consider there happened to be Pastor Jim's last point in our sermon this morning? Did you hear it? Because he was saying to consider the ways... And I'm going, ha, my class is going to love this because it's right here in the text. To consider, to think, to reckon. Yeah, you had a thought? I was going to make a comment to pitch to your previous thing about the attention spans where your, your people is. Yeah, we may not be able to stand up and have most of us to listen to those things, but we know the Cardinals are playing today. Yeah. <laughs> I had one person say we, we, have, we, we have actually a shorter attention span than a goldfish. Because a goldfish will go around the bowl and go, oh, look at that pretty castle. Wow, look at that castle. I've never seen anything like that before. And they do it again and again and again. It's like, hmm, you were kind of that way. And social media has not helped has just not helped. So, we tend to think, okay, we're gonna let the smart people in the room worry about the big stuff so that I don't have to. That's not right either. Uh, there was a book many, many years ago that was uh, rather influential in my own life. It was called Easy Believism. And it was a call to be thoughtful and to, to think because we we're creating a, a, a church or a, a movement that if we just don't make it so hard for people, they'll start following Jesus. Well, theology takes work. Understanding theology takes work. You have to think about it. You have to try to grasp it. We have to be able to understand, as Paul's trying to say, you've got to understand your position in Christ before you can act on that position. So he's been trying through the, all of these words and these extraordinary things, going all the way back to Adam and Abraham, laying out that position of where we are in Christ so that there is no question at all that you can get your way to heaven on your own. In fact, at this point, if you've been reading along and you've been understanding it, you don't get that point, you haven't been, you haven't been reading. You haven't been listening. He's making it so extremely clear there is nothing you can do to gain righteousness. It's all done for you by the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection. So, this last week, um, it's actually on Tuesday, the 2022 State of Theology Survey was released, the results. This particular survey has been done for five years now. It was put together by Lifeway, which is the Southern Baptist Convention, and Ligonier, which is R.C. Sproul's organization. They came together, created a survey of evangelicals, and were asking them certain theological questions. The results of this survey are very disturbing extremely disturbing. Now you might say, oh, it's because they're just interviewing anybody who says they're a Christian. No, the first questions are, do you believe the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe? If you answered yes, okay. If you believe, it's very important for me to personally encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, okay. 
Third, that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of sin. Okay. And fourth, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. That's the four criteria for identifying the evangelical in this survey. So you might say, if you can attest to those four things, you've got a pretty good understanding of the scriptures. Well, I'm going to hand out, actually, Carl's going to hand out, again, the questionnaire. And there's an answer key at the bottom. Please do not look at it. Okay. Otherwise, you will cheat and you will get all the answers right without even thinking. Uh, but I did this, uh, and I, I typed it up. And obviously, there's typos and other nice little things in here in my effort. Um, this is from the LifeWay uh, survey. <clears throat> and these were statements, and all these statements you answer with true or false. That's why it's supposedly easy. Um, I will not ask you to answer these questions out loud or to take the, quest the questionnaire right now. This is for your own tickles and grins. You can also go to the Ligonier website if you wish. And there is, in fact, I'll post it on the Inner Ultra website uh, where I post these, uh, these audio recordings. Each one of the true-false answers has a full, pay, full sentence or two of explanation with scripture reference. So it isn't just as stark as you had here, but it was the only way I could fit it on one page. Otherwise, you would have gotten a five-page printout. L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R. Ligonier. So it's a town in Pennsylvania. That's how they got their name. Um, or just look up State of Theology on the Gospel Coalition website, because that was also a place where it came up. So, <clears throat> look at number six. <clears throat> now again, please don't raise your hand with your answer. But number six, true or false, Jesus the first and greatest being created by God. True or false? <clears throat> just think about that for a second. Think of your answer, and if you answered false, you are a heretic. I'm sorry, if you answered true, you're a heretic. It is a false statement. 73% of evangelicals said this is true. That Jesus is a created being. If that's the case, then Jesus is not God. If that's the case, then his sacrifice on the cross is meaningless and has no propitiation for sin. 73%? That's just jaw-dropping. And by the way, that 73% is higher than it was five years ago. Five years ago, it was 60% more and more people are not understanding their theology. And you might say, okay, that's a semantic thing. Oh, don't get all, you know, spun up about that. Trick Goodness question. sake. Trick question. Exactly. It's a trick question. Because if you don't understand the nature of the Trinity, because it can be a little hard to comprehend, it would be very easy to answer that question incorrectly. Let's look at number three. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. True or false? If you answer true, you are incorrect. It's false. God may listen to unbelievers if they are praying to him in repentance for their sin, but he's not accepting worship that is not of the faith. 
58% of evangelicals say this is true. That pantheism is just fine. Let's go to another one. This one's going to be fun. Number 12. True or false? <laughs> Everyone sins a little. But most people are good by nature. Don't you hear this? All the time. All the time. That is a false statement. We studied that in chapter 5 of Romans. Of the sin nature that has been imputed on us by the sin of Adam. We are born into sin. That's, sorry, that's biblical. 55% of evangelicals agreed with this statement. So imagine you go into our congregation. Let's hope that answer wouldn't happen here in our congregation, but that would mean over half the room would accept this statement. <clears throat> then look at number seven. This is another fun one. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Now you kind of go, oh, that's obvious. Of course Jesus was God. 44% of evangelicals said that that is a true statement. That Jesus is not God. They probably didn't read the whole sentence. They probably just read Jesus was a great teacher. Well, you have to say, well, yes, he was. But there's a reason for that. Now, I don't know about you, but this really bothers me. It bothers me, it has bothered me every year when this survey comes out because it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. It's part of the reason why I'm pausing here in our, in our study to talk about the reason why Paul is being so careful that we set our foundation and our theology correct. That we have a statement of what we believe. Now you might say, well, I, I quote the Apostles' Creed every Sunday because we're reading it out of the bulletin and it's part of our service. And by saying it, I'm affirming it, okay? But do you understand the Apostles' Creed that you're reading? I hope so. <clears throat> the second page in your handout is something I created as part of my company, the Steve Lobby Agency. As a literary agency, I deal with the entire uh, book publishing world. And long ago, I had to make a determination whether I would identify our company as Christian or not. Uh, well, this is one way to make it very evident, is post a statement of faith right there on the website. And that's what this is. Very simple, nothing exciting. I took the verse references out so it would fit on the half page. In fact, you can fold it in half, that's why I have it printed that way. Um, and then when the Me Too movement came out and hit our industry, the Christian industry, didn't hear about it in the news, but it hit our industry too. Um, I had to create a code of conduct, which is the last statement. It's not necessarily a statement of faith, but it's a statement of code of conduct and how we behave toward one another. Now, I'm not putting this out here just going, oh, you need, you know, this is so cool, and aren't you a special person because you did this? What I'm saying is, do you have something like this for yourself? That has your name on the top? This is Steve Lobby's statement of faith. Could you print it out and write it out? This isn't original. I didn't just sit down and write it up. I looked at a variety of things and saying, collected and started thinking through the wording, even the order. I started with the Bible first. Most statements of faith start with God, like the Westminster Confession or the Belgian Confession or the London Baptist Convention or uh, Confession. All these various things start with God. I thought, you know, let's start with the Bible, especially as a businessman. If, you, if we can't figure out what the Bible is, we're going to have a lot of differences. So let's start with that. What is the Word of God? 
and from that derive the other statements. If you think, oh, I could never come up with anything like, anything like that, just go to the Camelback Bible Church website. How many of you have looked at the Camelback Bible website statement of faith recently? Say in the last two months, three months, right? It's all there. It's actually a very powerful document right there for you to look at. And you could go copy, paste, put it into a Word document, start looking through it and going, all right, I need to simplify this because it's very extensive. It's a really a wonderful document. You will also see, even in the church's statement of faith, some of the governance statements on the use of elders in the governance of the church. That's in there. It's kind of cool. But guess what? We're going to a church and we don't know what we believe. Maybe we need to read that. For the simple reason, two years ago, there was a new president of the Southern Baptist Convention was elected. Yay, this new guy. Yay, he's going to make a difference. And then the next day, it was posted of the heresy that was in his church's statement of faith on their website. Whoever had written their statement of faith 20 years ago that no one had reviewed since then, or that pastor who is now the president of the whole convention, had never even looked at his own church's website, had heretical statements on the nature of the Trinity posted for all to see. Within an hour, that statement came down on the web and a new one was replaced with correct verbiage. Oh my goodness sake, a church never even looked at their own statement of faith, real, not realizing that what they had up there was biblically incorrect. So may I just encourage you to do that for yourself at some point. It's not a big major thing per se, but if you don't have a foundation of what you believe as a believer, how can you live the Christian life that you claim to believe? That's the point I'm trying to make. Here's another way of looking at it. I was trying to think of what Paul was doing in creating a foundation upon which now we can go out and practice. So, 100 million years ago when I was an athlete, exactly, it's just no way. Um, Grand Canyon College, not university, it was a little tiny college. Did a walk-on for the basketball team. That's what I had this aspiration that I was going to play at the college level with basketball. Of course, that's when I met my first seven-footer and life changed. But anyway, um, boy, he was big. Anyway, the first meeting or practice for all the scholarship players and the walk-ons, and I, there were only four of us walk-ons, and there was one position open, so we would be vying for that position. The basketball coach, who after he left Canyon, actually went to the University of Arizona, was their coach for one year before they hired Lou Olson and everything changed. So this is prior to that. He held up basketball. He said, all right, young men, let's get down to the foundations. This is a basketball. <laughs> We're like, huh? And he goes, see that? little metal thing 10 feet off the ground, that is a hoop. The idea of this game, which you apparently want to play, is to put this inside that. And there will be others who will try to prevent you from doing it. And that is the nature of this game. So let me show you how it works. And he walks over and he tosses the ball in the basket. And I'm going, this is so dumb. One of the seniors turned to me and went, oh, he does this every year, it's so annoying. <laughs> um, 
But then, the first practice, none of us touched the ball. It was just running, it was just footwork. We never touched the basketball. It was the foundational movements upon which everything else was built. So that made me think of high school basketball where we had a particular offense that was apparently patterned after the University of Kentucky. And there was a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving parts. And in practice, we would go over and over and over these plays to the point where we didn't even think about it. It got to the point where I could be looking at you and know that Charlie was gonna be there because we'd done it 500 times. And if he wasn't there, that's his fault, not mine. And I would look at you and do this. The whole defense is over here. And there's Charlie running in for his, you know, uncontested points. It was by foundational rote over and over again. So I was talking to Lisa about this and she reminded me of our girls and their ballet. Even today, Geneva, who teaches ballet, every single ballerina starts their day at the bar. First position, second position, plie. These are the things you learn when you're three years old. And they still do it as muscle memory, just getting the body into that movement because every movement later is based on that first position. And if you don't know that one, you can't do the rest. This is what Paul's doing here. He's teaching us the theology of ballet. He's teaching us theology for a reason. So we take all of this six and a half chapters, 14 of our hours studying it together, and then he looks at it and says, now that you know all that, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in great Jesus Christ. The word consider is the Greek word logizomai, which has been used other places in, in this passage. It's an accounting term to count something. And I was an accountant as a my initial um, major in college was to be an accounting major, and it's so important to have the old school before Excel spreadsheets were ever, ever designed. You had the dual ledgers where everything was done by hand, and when you're done, they got a match. And we'd have all these extraordinary exercises in class where laborious numbers with our little calculator thinking, I'm so glad I have a calculator. Can you imagine if you didn't have one? And then when you get done, there's a stinking penny difference between the two columns. <sighs> so you have to start over and figure out where, up oh, there it was. That's the mistake. You must count, consider. It's not wishful thinking. But to count as true what God himself has already done for us. To consider yourselves dead to sin, not dead in sin. You're no longer in sin. You're dead to it. And therefore alive to God in Christ Jesus. So one teacher did something like this. was very interesting. He went through chapter 6. And since you have chapter 6 in front of you, you can follow along with me on this. He said, so we're in verse 11. What are we to consider? Because he's saying now to consider this. Verse 2. Consider you are dead to the sin of Adam. Verse 3. You are baptized into Christ Jesus and into his life. Verse 4. We are raised with him into newness of life. Verse 5, we are <clears throat> intertwined into his life and death 
forever identified with him. Verse 6, our old man that we used to be in Adam is dead. Verse 7, we have been justified from the sin of Adam and declared righteous because of what Christ did. Verse 8, we are believing daily that his life is now ours. Verse 9, we experientially know, because remember we talked about that, the gnosko means to know something experientially. We experientially know that since the death does not reign over Christ, it doesn't reign over us. At verse 10, he has died to the sin once for all. He ended its penalty and its power to those who have put their faith in him. And now, as he lives unto God, so we do because of his life in us. We are dead to sin. Robert Mounts in his commentary on Romans says this. Think of it this way. For a Christian to choose to sin is the spiritual equivalent of digging up a corpse for fellowship. Think about that for a second. We are dead to sin. It is kaput. It is done. It's buried. And we're digging it up so we can have tea. A genuine death to sin means the entire perspective of the believer has been radically altered. And he's so right. That idea of being dead to sin, when you really kind of churn through that concept and think about it, it's so powerful. And then he flips it even further in verse 12. and verse 12 and 13, Remember, we've had no imperatives up to this point. There's three of them in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 has, let not, the sin, let not sin therefore reign. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin and present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Suddenly, there's all these imperatives. He's been waiting and waiting and waiting and suddenly goes, throws four of them at you in three verses. So look, so look at the first one. Let not sin therefore reign. By the way, for those of you who like to be uh, Greek grammar nerds, there's a missing word in the English. It's the word the. It's let not the sin. The word the is in the Greek. It's actually the article's just sitting right there. It's just never translated because it doesn't make quite the same sense in English, because if you say the sin, suddenly you have a rampant theological de debate on what does that mean. So just saying, let not sin, therefore reign. To reign means to have a king. In other words, don't let sin be a king in your life. Don't let it reside in your life. He even said earlier in verse 9 that death no longer has dominion. Well, that's the same word. The word reign or dominion. Psalm 119, verse 133. I'm certain this is macrame on one of your pillows in your house. Um, well, maybe not. Uh, maybe it should. Psalm 119, 133 says, Let no iniquity get dominion over me. And here it reads, Let not sin therefore reign. Or, even down in verse 14, Have dominion over you. Same word. Isn't that interesting? Old and New Testaments are combining. But let not sin reign therefore in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The passions or the lusts, depending on your translation, of the mortal body, our physical, corporal, 
weak body. So you have to think of how do you expand on that? How do you think of that? Start with the body, thinking of the mind. There's a writer years ago named Harry Blameyers who wrote this. There is no longer a Christian mind. There is still, of course, a Christian ethic, a Christian practice, and a Christian spirituality. As a moral being, the modern Christian subscribes to a code other than that of the non-Christian. As a member of the church, he undertakes obligations and observances ignored by the non-Christian. As a spiritual being, in prayer and meditation, the Christian strives to cultivate a dimension of life unexplored by the non-Christian. But as a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. Except over a very narrow field of thinking, chiefly touching questions of personal conduct, we Christians in the modern world accept for the purpose of mental activity a frame of reference constructed by the secular mind and a set of criteria reflecting secular evaluations. It's almost like you want to say enlightenment has taken Christ out of the formula. So you go to pre-enlightenment times and you go, oh, well, we've got the Puritans. Oh, those dour, terrible people who wrote books like The Sinfulness of Sin. 300 pages on one word defining what sin is and what it looks like in all its permutations, written in 1633. <clears throat> it's kind of powerful. There's one poem. <clears throat> sin will take you farther than you ever thought you'd stray. Sin will leave you so lost you think you'll never find your way. Sin will keep you longer than you ever thought you'd stay. And sin will cost you more than you ever thought you'd pay. The sinfulness of sin. <coughs> the lack of a Christian mind. We might think, oh, I know how to act like a Christian. Okay. <clears throat> That's being redefined today by the secular world. And if you happen to say that you're basing your thought processes on the scripture, well then you're just an idiot. You are just stuck in the old ways. So you have the minds being bombarded by billions of messages. In fact, I forgot to do it. I was thinking about it on Tuesday and forgot to do it Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. <coughs> I was going to count how many billboards or advertisements that I saw while driving in my car from my office to the mailbox, which I go to every day. My guess is probably 50. I may not see them, because it's not just what's up here. It's also the sign that's on the window, or on the bumper, or somewhere else. They're Everywhere we are being bombarded by messages other than live the Christian life. Be holy, for I am holy. We just don't happen to see that on a billboard. Our eyes and ears makes you think of the sin of Achan, Joshua chapter 7. Israel had conquered a people and God comes to Joshua and said You're, you as people of Israel will suffer because there's people in, in your camp 
that I've been stealing and have not been following what I said to do, which was to destroy everything. Joseph going, I, I, it's not me. There's got to be somebody. So they go out and Achan stands up and goes, actually it says in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, I have to just read his, his words. They're kind of astounding when you think about it. When I saw with his eyes, when I saw the spoil, among the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 coins or shekels of silver and a gold bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I, I coveted them and I took them. And I buried them in the earth inside my tent. And so they went and looked in his tent and there it was. Um, this is one of those harsh penalties of the Old Testament. You kind of, But it says they brought out Achan and his entire family and all of his goods and burned them all, killed them all. And then the next statement was God withdrew his wrath and Israel was able to move forward. The eyes, the ears, they're a gateway. What we see, what we hear, <clears throat> and you start thinking of the tongue. Well, James has a little bit to say about that. James chapter 3. So the tongue is the smallest member, but it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among your members and staling, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. <coughs> I would have to say that our political rancor in our current American culture right now kind of shows that every day. And unfortunately, I think it infects all of us. We get sucked right into that. And we may say things, we may speak things that probably would not be honoring to Christ if we put it in that context. And remember what I said last week, if I'm pointing a finger, I've got three of them pointing back at me. So I'm not we think of hands and feet. So, <laughs> actually, this kind of just jumped out at me when I was thinking about this. Kind of like, okay, hands, it's doing things, and where do our feet go? And I thought, well, wait, what have we been doing ever since COVID? We sanitize our hands. <coughs> In fact, it was, seemed to be so weird <coughs> that suddenly everybody was afraid to touch each other. And then if we did, we would... <gasps> Get the sanitizer. Suddenly sanitizers was a golden product that you couldn't find on the shelves. Everybody wanted sanitizers. And then you would go to places that had sanitizers that you didn't even have to touch. And you just, ooh, ooh. I don't have to touch it with some gnarly person who touched it before me. It's like, okay, and we're always doing this because our hands might have been exposed to something nefarious. <clears throat> Maybe we should be carrying hand sanitizers. <laughs> not sanitizers, ha ha ha. Because we're not germaphobes, we're cinephobes. The idea that we are so careful of what we're doing with our hands now versus what just even three or four years ago, shouldn't that be a bit of a picture of what we need to be doing with our hearts and minds and ears and soul? We get exposed to something and are like, <gasps> just get away from it. 
cleanse it somehow, some way. The devil plots your overthrow every minute of every day in your mortal life. If you want a vivid picture of temptation of the believer, read Screwtape Letters again by C.S. Lewis. It's so vivid when Wormwood writes to Screw Uncle Screwtape and says, oh, the guy I've been assigned to, he became a Christian. Oh. And Screwtape says, oh, don't worry, we can still get him. Really? Yeah, the next time, if he's in a church service, remind him that he's hungry. And he won't be listening to the sermon anymore. Oh, good idea. Verse 13. Do not present your members to sin. Think of the idea of presenting something in the Old Testament context. That's what you did in a sacrifice. You would sacrifice something and then present it on an altar to a God. Do not present your members to sin. Sin as the small g, God. Do not present yourself as you would to gods as instruments of unrighteous. Instead, present yourself to God who's been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Again, Pastor Jim stole my thunder today because he was quoting from Romans chapter 12, so it's just a few chapters from now, where he says, I appeal by the mercies of God to present, same word, your bodies, here, your members, as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship and that's why I came up with the domain for these classes called inner altar A-L-T-A-R as the inner altar where we present that sacrifice a living sacrifice to God that's why I do I came up with that idea thinking of this concept and here it's a precursor to chapter 12 where he's saying that very same thing. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion. Same word as in verse 9. No dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Charles Spurgeon said, wrote this. He said, sin will reign if it can. <clears throat> it cannot be satisfied with any place below the throne of your heart. And we sometimes fear that it will conquer us, and we cry out, Lord, let not any iniquity have dominion over me, quoting from Psalm 119. And this is his comforting answer in verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. It may assail you, it may even wound you, but it will never establish sovereignty over you ever again. A.W. <clears throat> Tozer writes, it's disheartening to those who care and certainly a great grief to the spirit to see how many Christians are content to settle for less than the best. Personally, I have for years carried the burden of sorrow as I move among evangelical Christians who somewhere in their past have managed to strike a compromise with their heart's holier longings and have settled down to a lukewarm, mediocre kind of Christianity utterly unworthy of themselves and of the Lord they claim to serve. And such are found everywhere. Everyone is as close to God as they want to be. Think about that for a second. He is as holy and as full of the Spirit as He wills to be. Yet He must distinguish wanting from wishing. And by want, I mean wholehearted desire. Certainly there are many who wish they were holy or victorious or joyful, but they're not willing 
to meet God's conditions to attain holiness. <coughs> Sin will attempt to dominate you at every turn. It is our innate weakness. And therefore, even those of us who are in Christ must be constantly at guard. How many times have you seen those that seem to be very strong in the face suddenly twist and suddenly they say, I never believed after all. It's called deconstructing their faith. It's a movement now, especially among younger people who may have grown up in a church, think they have a solid foundation, but they ultimately don't. And they end up selling their souls to something else because they think it's so much better. One guy, this is a long time ago, actually over 100 years ago, a guy named Olaf Olafsson was a free citizen of Sweden. And he found himself hard pressed for money. So in desperation, he sold his body for medical research to the Karolinska Institute of Stockholm. Obviously they could use it once he's dead, not while he's alive. Um, a year later, he inherited a fortune. And so he tried to buy himself back. And the Institute refused to sell him his rights to his own body. And in a lawsuit, the Institute retained possession of it and they collected damages from Olaf because he had had two teeth extracted without their permission. That's not true. That can't be possible. Yeah, it can be. We have to think who owns our souls. Have we sold our souls to Christ? If we have, then we need to exhibit that and not let the other side take hold. Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but are under grace. Chapter 5, verse 21 says, As sin reigned in death, grace must grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Grace is not of this world, it's supernatural in origin. A depraved mind cannot comprehend grace. A sanctified mind is lost in the depths of grace. I just spent probably, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes last night just thinking about the concept of grace. I just sat there, I wasn't taking notes or anything. And it's just that wash of gratefulness for what Christ has done for us, for me, who is undeserving. And that's when I wrote, I then wrote, a sanctified mind is lost in its depths and we end up playing around in the shallows. We who believe struggle to understand and to apply it because it's unfathomable that the creator of the universe would even care a whit for you or for me. And then right here it says that sin, that, that thing that separates us from God will no longer have dominion over you. Yeah, it's going to be part of you. You're going to be wrestling with it, but it will not reign. It will not reign because we're not under the law. We are under that grace. And the problem is, <laughs> we try to take a little bit of that glory for ourselves as if it's something we did. Oh yeah, we believe God you know, in His glory and His gift and all that, but we, we try to grasp a little bit of credit we want to at least be a name that rolls at the bend of the movie. We're 75,000 names scroll at high speed 
and you're, and you're sitting here hitting the pause button, oh, there I am. We want that kind of credit. And instead, God simply says, it's all me, not you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, for looking closely, carefully, at just a few verses that just kind of unfold in a way that we've never looked before of what the intentionality of what you were trying to teach us here. That the foundation of what we believe gives us the strength and the ability to live what we believe. Thank you, Lord, so much for showing us that in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.